Hola oyentes, soy Fiorella Pinillos y este es Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, we are joined by Dan Edelman, an assistant professor of rhetoric at the University of Toronto. Dan received his PhD from UBC in 2016 and has previously taught at the University of British Columbia, Simon Fraser University, British Columbia Institute of Technology, and Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design. Alongside our host, Amjoha, he is the co-founder of the Vancouver Institute for Social Research, a non-profit graduate-level critical theory free school ran out of the Or Gallery since 2013. Delighted that you could join us this morning, Dan Edelman, our guest on Below the Radar. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me, Am. Dan, why don't we begin by just wanting to introduce yourself in terms of the work that you're doing at the at the University of Toronto. Okay, well, uh, I did my uh, PhD in English Language and Literature at UBC. Uh, I finished that in 2016, and I was teaching at Emily Carr University here in Vancouver, and uh, decided that I should apply for another job. So I put together the most exquisite package that I could and applied for this job at the University of Toronto teaching rhetoric and then forgot all about it because I thought I didn't have a chance in hell at getting the job and went traveling. And I don't know, three months later, I started getting all these phone calls from a Toronto phone number. I was in Winnipeg at the time and I didn't pick up the phone calls because... I thought it was a telemarketer or something like that. I finally picked up on the 10th call, kind of angrily, and said, oh, University of Toronto in his college, we'd like to do a Skype interview. So I borrowed a suit jacket and did a Skype interview. Three weeks later, I was moving to Toronto. And a big part of the premise of my application for this writing and rhetoric job is that we have to develop ways to think about new media studies, ecology, and rhetoric, or symbolic environments, uh, together, new ways of intertwining them. And that, that's work that was inaugurated by figures like Marshall McLuhan, who is most famous for developing this Toronto School of Media Studies, but not a lot of people know that he was a classically trained rhetorician. Now, you've been working there for a few years now, and maybe if you could share with us some of the courses that you've been teaching and you've been developing new courses with undergrad students and others. So, Sure. Yeah, it's uh, been a huge project of mine to roll out this new curriculum. And fortunately, uh, the program at Innes College has been very permissive with me, has facilitated everything that I've wanted to roll out so far. The core curriculum revolves around this course called A Brief History of Persuasion, which is about the genesis and evolution of the rhetorical tradition, starting with Gorgias, Plato, and Aristotle, and this argument that emerged around whether or not rhetoric was a discipline. And if it was a discipline, what kind of discipline is it? Plato slash Socrates espoused that rhetoric wasn't an actual discipline. It was just a kind of knack, that persuasion just happens when a charismatic orator like Gorgias, the sophist, when he gets up on his soapbox and persuades people of a certain course of action, like we should go to war with this nation state, or we should lower taxes or raise taxes, or that somebody should be found guilty of a certain offense. And there was uh, 
certain amount of justification for that view on the part of Socrates because Gorgias was a kind of charismatic charlatan and he was famous for taking money to take on any kind of soapbox position. So if you gave him a nickel to make a case to go to war with Sparta, then he would take on that position. And if you paid him a nickel to take the opposite position, he would do so just as readily. And Socrates believed that rhetoric, the art of persuasion, was antithetical to the pursuit of truth, which was the task of proper philosophizing. But his student, well, Plato's student, Aristotle, believed that rhetoric, the art of finding the best available means of persuasion for a given task, was a proper discipline and taught it side by side with philosophy. So I tracked those conversations over the millennia through the Romans, all the Europeans, and the Americans, and the birth of the new rhetoric in the 20th century with Kenneth Burke. And for Burke, whose work is really is just as seminal as McLuhan's and emerges at around the same time, we have to think about rhetorical environments or scenes as these dynamic symbolic ecosystems of persuasion, of influence, of identification, of ideology, and so on. So we track those conversations in that course. And that's really the keystone of my curriculum. Interestingly, when we think about the word persuasion, how it relates to communications, the sort of subfields outside the academy that use those terms quite regularly in politics, the backroom of politics. It's sort of the rhetoric of persuasion is very much used in terms of voter identification. It's used in the field of advertising around whether it's uh, Lipman in the early 20th century. Those types of rhetorics were definitely employed in the field of public relations. And so they do kind of coincide with political power, but also a kind of economic zone, selling products and all of these kinds of things. And these have shaped very much the 20th century, but previous times as well. So how do you relate rhetoric to these fields of political communications and advertising communication? Well, uh, something that Kenneth Burke's work has in common with McLuhan's is that uh, they both aver that we should take the stuff of advertising and popular culture seriously as objects of inquiry. And you know, rather than merely disparaging them as, as mere rhetoric, as, as an epithet, we should scrutinize how they do the work of persuasion, of influence, of reorientation, configuration of the field of influence. Now, you've done some work related to media theory and ecology. And when we think of the relationship between the human animal and nature itself. There's lots of people in philosophy that have ventured into those areas in the 20th century from Heidegger on the question concerning technology to uh, many others. But your approach to thinking through this question around rhetoric, media, and ecology, what has your approach been? Well, a lot of it unfolds around initial homologies between rhetorical optics on the one hand, thinking about symbolic environments how they they tug and pull at us in different ways, Uh, ecological environments, loosely speaking, nature, ecosystems, and the kinds of operations that happen through them, uh, how they impact us, how we impact them, and technological environments, 
media environments. And obviously the rhetorician Marshall McLuhan was seminal and refashioning how we think about media, not so much as inconsequential vehicles of our communications, as full-spectrum envelopes that completely reconfigure the field of human interaction and reshape us at almost the molecular level, which has now been integrated into common sense. But when he first started to espouse these ideas in the 50s and 60s, he was written off as a charlatan. People thought it was nonsense. And in terms of bringing McLuhan back into the classroom today, how do you view the relevance of McLuhan now? Well, his legacy persists through a lot of different avenues. I mean, uh, I teach this course called Digital Rhetoric, where we think about the legacy of figures like Marshall McLuhan, Harold Innes, all the way to the present day. And not just in terms of blandly applying these ideas developed in the 50s and the 60s, 70s to the contemporary scene, but thinking about how these ideas have and can continue to metamorphose in relation to our ever-evolving media environment. We were reading The Medium is the Massage in my digital rhetoric class, a seminal graphic novel written with Quentin Fiore, wherein McLuhan really prognosticates the contemporary moment in all kinds of ways. And, and a student of mine who's about 18, 19 years old, very bright student act, asked me about halfway through the lecture, so was there or wasn't there internet in McLuhan's day? And she was incredulous, you know, having been born around the time of 9-11, you know, being born with a social media account pretty much. She was incredulous that in McLuhan's time, you know, the world that he was talking really hadn't come to pass yet because he was able to evoke in such vivid terms the world that we now inhabit, the global village. In terms of other thinkers you're looking at, in terms of media theory that you're bringing into these questions around rhetoric, media, and ecology, are you looking at people like Paul Virilio or mm -hmm. others? Who yeah. else from the area that you're reading through that you're bringing into the classroom when thinking through these questions? Yeah. Slaughterdyke? Oh, very much so. Whereas in the Brief History of Persuasion class, uh, we focus on the unfolding of conversations around persuasion and disciplinarity. In the media class, we look at the unfolding of conversations around media and the global village. So after looking at McLuhan's work, we look at the work of Friedrich Kittler, who's a more extremist, hyperbolic version of McLuhan in a lot of ways, who integrates the post-structuralist work of Jacques Lacan, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Paul Virilio, is much more apprised of the bellicose militaristic dimensions of media technology. And then we move on to the focus on attention, our faculty of attention, and it, its metamorphoses and its diminishment over time. Because for the longest time, people thought that attention was just this received faculty that was relatively universal amongst people. But now it's obviously been assimilated into everyday common sense that our capacity for attention, for deep attention, the kind of stuff that we cultivated through you know, our investment in print culture is susceptible to diminishment in relation to our transfiction on media technology and our addiction to media technology. So we look at the work of Kate Hales and Bernard Stiegler and there are differing takes on attention. Hales believes that uh, hyperattention, she calls it, what most of us refer to as multitasking, 
is an aptitude. Stiegler is much more pessimistic about what's been happening to human attention span over the last couple of decades. Do you look at people like Isabel Stengers or Donna Haraway or the artist Hito Sterl who writes mm-hmm. about rhetoric and media as well? We do look at Donna Haraway's work. And in fact, we have this visiting faculty member next year, uh, Megan Bowler, who's a student of Donna Haraway. And we benefit immensely from her insights. Haraway is one of these, in many ways, eco-medial thinkers. And she's really our first foray into eco-medial thinking. And that is if, if for people like McLuhan and Innes, media constitutes not just a vehicle or a substrate of communication, but a full-spectrum environment, an envelope, then eco-medial thinking is about the extent to which our natural environment constitutes a kind of medium. And so there's this chiasmatic relationship between media as environment and environment as medium. And that's something that we explore through the work of Donna Haraway, among others. Do you at all relate to the work of Quentin Malisu? It's an undergrad class. So I'm still coming to terms with Malisu's work myself. And so besides the teaching and the working on curriculum that you're doing, you've been also doing some writing work as well. I'm wondering if you have any current writing projects that you're working on right now. Yeah, a lot. You know, one of them is that's going to be coming out as a a book chapter with uh, Routledge sometime in the next half year or so is a broader vision of this interlacing of rhetoric, ecology and media. And then uh, another piece that'll be coming out soon looks at these vectors through the work of a local Vancouver scholar, Ian Angus. And then I'm also doing some work on genres, uh, in particular genres of television and cinema. So I'm editing a uh, special edition of the Canadian Review of American Studies around what some scholars refer to as new television and new rhetorical ways of looking at television series like The Wire, Sopranos, Deadwood, and so on. And now in terms of your analysis and reading of rhetorics historically and in the contemporary, are there ways that you're reading the present political moment in terms of the relationships to populism and authoritarianism that are functioning in various ways, or reading that culturally? Yeah, well, there's so many avenues uh, for, for that too many. line of inquiry. <laughs> yeah. Kenneth Burke uh, was especially interested in these kinds of uh, political movements, and he has a lot to say. And For him, a lot of these forms of so-called populism revolve around the complex interplay of identification and disidentification, which... He adopts and adapts from Freud, but uses more generally. Uh, For him, the basis of identification, the bases are myriad. You know, we we identify with others on the basis of everything from, you know, race and gender to, you know, class and forms of conspicuous consumption, literary and cinematic enthusiasms, fashion, and so on. This is something that goes on. It's always already happening, and it's tugging at us from a thousand different directions. And whether it's looking at, you know, Hitler's Mein Kampf, 
or more contemporary movements, you know, you can see the, the complex operation of identification with some on certain alleged grounds and disidentification with others. You know, I'm, I'm especially fascinated in Vancouver's political scene along those lines. I mean, for example, to my mind, this is just me, I, I thought that uh, Vision Vancouver as a political party was cynically and, and sinisterly brilliant at the operation of identification as a political gesture, as a political strategy, actually. In terms of how you read Toronto politics or Ontario politics today with uh, Doug Ford mm -hmm. coming into power, that has a particular kind of effect on the post-secondary environment in particular. So how are you feeling that in terms of the political rhetorics that were employed from a campaign point of view, but in terms of how it actually lands down on the ground in various social sectors and public health and other areas? Well, there's a massive rift. I'm, I'm not as savvy a reader of the political scene in Toronto as Vancouver because I've only been there for a few years. Nonetheless, you know, obviously, the provincial government seems to be employing a version of populism, or a recapitulation of a form of populism that's been sweeping the world over the last few years, perhaps beginning with Trump. And in many ways the provincial government in Ontario is actually a much more measured and controlled and savvy version of that form of populism. You know, I don't know whether it's the handlers or whether it's just the premier himself, but, you know, they're very strategic in what they disclose to the general public and what goes on behind closed doors and stuff. You don't get a lot of three in the morning, you know, bathroom tweets or anything like that with the provincial government. Nonetheless, the way they've managed to appeal to and mobilize working people, suburbanites, rural Ontario has been extremely formidable. And they've managed to forge a very powerful coalition, the likes of which I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. And interestingly, it kind of coincides timing-wise with the election of Jason Kenney, where there's been a mobilization of government resources mm -hmm. around a kind of energy mm -hmm. war room, which... Mm -hmm. I mean, it is almost Orwellian in a certain sense of the use of the language around the creation of these pieces, which is really a kind of propaganda mm -hmm. arm of government to mobilize against civil society organizations, those people who might have differences with the government, which were part of the sort of practice of democracy and government in a free society, yeah. that we have a mobilization of government. And I suppose it happens all the time, but perhaps not so explicitly or in such a deeply partisan way as this particular issue. Yeah, well, we see the operation, the very complex operation of identification and disidentification at play in, for example, pipeline politics. You know, whether it's Harper's equation of anti-pipeline activism as foreign influence. You know, there's the pejorative use of influence and foreign. Well, I mean, what are these petroleum companies then? Or whether it's Trudeau's complex forms of signaling that he's a friend of indigenous peoples while railroading pipelines through. These seem to be, you know, very deliberate strategies for getting certain demographics on board. Well, alienating others that you can afford to alienate, politically speaking. Now, Dan, you and I collaborated on a project for many years here in Vancouver when you were here, the Vancouver Institute for Social Research, critical theory free school that we kind of ran off the side of our desks out of the Ore Gallery and a wonderful little community that formed around it. I'm wondering if you're still thinking about uh, doing something in Toronto similar. 
Yeah, I have been because uh, that was obviously a, a huge part of my life for, I know, five years or so that we, we did that. And I'm constantly sitting in on classes at the University of Toronto. It's uh, kind of a treasure trove of what ends up being free education for me. I, I usually just walk into classes and sit on, eavesdrop on them all the time. You're a weird dude. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> and uh, our former facilitator, our host, Jonathan Middleton, for example, he, he's out in Toronto too. And I've chatted with him about the possibility of starting up a free school project. In the meantime, I've been hosting public education events at Innes College, where it's been really important to us that we hold these para-academic, as you like to call them, education events, free to the public, free of charge, and of the sort that would appeal to this appetite for cutting-edge theory. So we just, about a week ago, hosted the political philosopher Jody Dean at Innes College, and that was on December 5th, I think it was a... It was a Thursday or a Friday night, snowy night in Toronto. 200 people showed up. It was incredible. And that really emboldened me, both at Innes College and maybe in some kind of free school project to continue. And not just along the lines of what we did in Vancouver, but maybe you know, continuing to develop that model of a para-academic free school and continue to think through what that might look like. And I think every different iteration of a free school is going to be a little bit different from the others. And that's how it should be. Great. Anything else you'd like to add, Dan? Oh, that's plenty. You know, if I've said anything incriminating, I hope you'll edit it out of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a professor of rhetoric, so you can say whatever you like. Much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan Edelman for joining us on Below the Radar. Stay in the loop with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcast. As always, thank you to the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Yorela Pinillos, Jackie Obonga, Paige Smith, and Kathy Feng. Davey Steele is a composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. Gracias. <laughs>